has even experienced. So it's our desire today that you would speak clearly, that we hear your voice. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. You doing all right? I have a I have a phrase that I when I ask a college student if I'm walking by them I'll say you doing all right and they'll say yeah and I'll say you lying to me and it's interesting the responses that I get when I ask that question because they usually get a little more honest with me the second time than the first I mean you just we walk by each other all the time right hey how you doing fine and they're empty questions really um, I'm grateful this morning, I was, I was thinking as we were singing, I'm grateful this morning for the fact that God has made provision for us. That the song that we have been singing all weekend speaks of the provision that Christ has made for us to live life in a very specific way, hasn't he? Um, he calls us to live, he, he gives us an invitation to live life um, in a very specific way. Um, we just, we just ate breakfast together. When you, when you think of dinner, when you think of dinner, the dinner table, what do you think of? What comes to mind for you? Uh, I wasn't necessarily asking for a response, all right? <laughs> but the times that we eat with family and friends, um, what pictures come to mind for you? Um, my, my, my folks... Uh, my mom and dad were very specific, um, very intentional, I should say, at making sure that dinner played a primary role for us because the older we got, and you know the way it is, I mean, when you're young, when your kids are young, it's like herding cats, right? Uh, but then when your kids are older, you feel like you're chasing them because they're going everywhere. But my, my parents always were very intentional about um, making sure that dinner was important for us, an important time, and, and we would... We would, you know, we would always tell stories about our day. They ask those inquiring, probing questions that as 15, 16-year-olds, you really didn't want to get anymore. But, you know, um, if you, if those of you who knew my dad, you knew that there was really no way to get around him. But my, my sister was, my youngest sister was the clown, as babies usually are. And our dinner table sometimes just turned into a three-ring circus. But they were just special. They were meaningful. We laughed together. We cried together. We told stories together. We reminisced. Um, we did life um, around the dinner table. Um, but one of the things that comes with eating together is etiquette, right? There's a proper way. Did you know this? There's a proper way. Jimmy, did you know this? There's a proper way to set the table. Did you know that? Jimmy knew that. Isn't that good that Jimmy knows that? Jimmy and I go way back so I can pick on him a little bit. Uh, I never understood, though, as a kid growing up, why the fork had to go on the left-hand side of the plate. Did you ever try and figure that out? I mean, I'm a righty. Everybody in my family is righties. But still, we'd come to the dinner table, and the fork was on the left-hand side of the plate. And so the first thing you do is you reach with your left hand, and you move it to the right, right? At least that's what I did as a kid. But there are just some things that you do, right? Because it's proper etiquette at the dinner table, you know? Did, did you know that there is a school, you ever heard of Emily Post? You know, she wrote umpteen books, right? Well, do you know there's an institute that you can go to um, to learn how to set and serve all kinds of tables? The Emily Post Institute. So if you're interested, you can pay her lots of money and go there. 
But there are books on etiquette for, for dinners and weddings, as well as books. I did a, I did a pretty extensive Google search on this, uh, and, and I looked on Amazon. There's books for men. There's books for kids. There's books for business travelers. So they know what's appropriate and what's inappropriate when they're eating together, right? I couldn't find a book for women. So like what? Do you guys all come with it inherent in you that like you know what proper etiquette is? I mean, I, I just, I, I really couldn't. couldn't. But, but all this, the, the volumes of books that people write and then some people actually buy it and read it, I guess, you know? Um, it, I think it speaks to us about the fact that dinner table stuff, dinner table behavior is serious. It's serious stuff. There, and there are some things that are obvious, right? So we, we know that we chew with our mouth, mouth closed, right? I mean, you, you teach your kids that at a young age. When, when eating at a fancier setting, when there are far too many forks, knives, and spoons than any of us need and we know what to do with, we know the safest way, at least the way I learned, is you start from the outside in, right? Why, why do you put a shrimp fork, though, at your setting if there's no shrimp on the table? I'll never understand that, but that's okay. It's just my issue, right? Do you know when you pass food, um, you always pass it to the right or counterclockwise? Did you know that? I think we did that wrong, Mom. But I think you always, I'm just saying, you always pass to the right. Unless you're at a large table where there's more than 10 people. Now, this is true. Look it up. If someone is seated less, less um, at, no more than two seats away from you, and they ask for something, then it's proper to, to pass to the left. Otherwise, you always pass to the right. You always put your napkin on your lap, Right? Um, and on and on and on it goes. Now, now, trust me, I don't have childhood issues. My mom didn't make me memorize all these things. I, I Google searched them when I was thinking about this. But there is, there's proper etiquette when it comes to what's appropriate conversation at the table. There are some things you just don't talk about unless you have 13, 15, and 17-year-old boys, right? And then usually your etiquette is out the window as far as conversation goes. But Usually we like, like to leave some things for other times, right? Um, and there's a book for everything that you can imagine on this. So when you eat, you don't just sit down, do you? There's proper etiquette. There are certain things we do when we eat together. So when you go to someone's home for dinner, especially if you have young kids, the biggest concern for parents is that they're, they're children will act appropriately at their house because we, we want to act right. We want to act well. Um, there's something, all these table manners, all these, these, these proper etiquette things, there's something that we all need to learn and some of us have learned them quicker than others. Well, there's a story that happened to me that I'll, I'll never forget and, and mom, I know you where I'm going with this, but I was nine or ten years old and, and every year my dad pastored in Michigan and you guys know that, but my whole life he pastored in Michigan. Uh, but I am still a Buckeye, so I just had to, just, that's just for you this morning, all right? Uh, well, no, there's not, actually. Uh, sorry, Katie. Um, for, for, uh, for the holidays, though, we'd always make the trek, and it was usually western Michigan to Chicago, and, and you know, sometimes that trip is not always fun in December, but we always did it, and Christmas Day, day for us was filled with a lot of memories and stories. So, like, we would always line up. My grandpa had one of these in the 60s and 70s. You ever seen those? Sorry, guys. You ever seen these Super 8 cameras, you know, where they had these huge floodlights on them? 
and, and the camera's rolling, and you can hear the camera rolling, and the floodlights, you know, and, and well, my, my grandparents had this hallway that's probably as long as, the, at least to me when I was that age, it seemed this long, and it was always dark, except for the two floodlights that were on my grandpa's camera, and he made us walk down one at a time. True story, Mom? Made us walk down. She can validate some things for me, and when I don't ask her, then I think you know all you need to know about that. So, but they would walk down, and these floodlights would just hit you, and everyone, when the floodlights hit you, would just kind of go like that, you know? But that was one of the traditions. We always opened presents, youngest to oldest. Uh, if there was anything that needed to be put together, then afterwards, aunts and uncles would work with grandkids and put the stuff together, and I had, I had one of those old Super 8, you remember those old Super 8 car tracks? You know, I had one of those, and I remember playing with it. But, there, but the, the, the highlight of the day for us, though, probably like all of you, was the meal. Right where you would gather at the dinner table, we'd all sit together. They'd put the leaves in, and this table was ginormous, and we'd eat together. Well, on this particular day, I'm assuming it was over a holiday. I don't really remember for sure, but we were eating together, passing the food around as you always do, and I don't remember if it was right or left. But um, I had just buttered my roll, and I took the extra butter from my knife and I scraped it on the butter plate, and I began to pass the plate around so I could use the butter. And I remember how startled. And actually, scared, frightened, might be closer to the truth, as my grandfather snapped at me, letting me know, scolding me in front of my whole family, how inappropriate it was for me to put the butter back on the butter dish, and that I needed to take it off. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly what he said or how he said it, but that's how I remember it. I, I remember I was embarrassed. Um, and I quickly apologized. I didn't remember as a 9 or 10 year old kid until scolded by my grandfather that scraping extra butter on the butter plate was inappropriate. But I got to tell you something, it's something I've never had to relearn. Right? Uh, I learned in that moment, especially at my grandfather's, at my grandparents' table, that some things were not appropriate at the table. Over the years and more recently, I, I don't know what's made me think about this, but I think one of the things... I, you know, I am dipped deep. Yeah, I tell students at Olivet this all the time. Uh, we have 56 denominations at Olivet now, but I am dipped deep in Nazarene. I mean, it's, it's my life. I'm fourth generation. My grandkids are sixth generation. I'm dipped as deep as you can get dipped. All right? I'm concerned for, not, I'm not just concerned for the Nazarene church. I'm concerned for the church. And I think that's one of the things that I've been thinking about here is I think I think, I think, we have lost our etiquette. I think the church is losing its table manners. This story happened to me over 40 years ago, but I can still remember it like it happened yesterday. I remember the setting. I remember who I was sitting next to. I remember the smirk I got you know, the, the half chuckle I got from my sister who was sitting across the table from me when I was the one getting yelled at, not her. I just, re I mean, it's, it's so vivid to me because of what happened in that moment. And it's also made me wonder whose behavior was less appropriate at that dinner table. A nine-year-old kid because he scraped butter on a butter dish. Oh, my grandpa. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. I love Loved my grandpa. I have a lot of great memories of my mom's dad. I, I loved going to their house. I spent weeks at their house in the summer. I don't want you to hear me wrong, but that, the fact, if I bet if I could sit across the table from my grandfather and tell him that's one of my memories of him, his heart would be broken. 
because he wouldn't want that any more than I do. But it's made me think of the ways that we eat together, so to speak. Um, and the lessons we can learn from that. The metaphor that a dinner table can have for those of us who claim to live in the way of Jesus. How well do we eat together? What are our table manners like? How well do we eat with those that we are like? And how well and welcoming are with those that aren't maybe so much like us, you know, them, them. How well do you eat, how well do we eat with them? Um, I was thinking about this, and over Christmas break in between semesters, um, I read a book called A Meal with Jesus. And it's a discussion on the culture that we can create. It's not a book on, you know, it's, it's, it's not a book on etiquette, like, like I was talking about earlier, but it's talking about the culture that is created around a dinner table. And the author of this book looked at the way that Jesus engaged with those in his culture. And in his words, if I can paraphrase it, he said this, that meals for Jesus and his table manners were shaped by grace, friendship, and mission. In other words, it seemed that when Jesus was eating with folks, something besides eating was always going on. Now, it's really the same with us, too, though, isn't it? I mean, do you guys ever get together? Do you guys ever talk after church on a Sunday? Or maybe this morning you'll get together with somebody and say, hey, you want to go out for lunch? Matt Smith is the director of campus rec at Olivet, and, and usually once or twice a week he'll text me, and, he, and the only one word, lunch? And I'll say, sure. He'll say, what time? And I'll tell him. And he'll drive his car over, pick me up in front of Ludwig, and then he'll say, where are we going? We don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're going to eat. Because us eating lunch together is not about the food, is it? It's just about getting together. And, and meals for Jesus were opportunities to be with friends, certainly. But they were also to make new ones. And I think they give us a glimpse into who he is. Remember I said last night, sometimes his, I mean, the words of Jesus are important, but I think just as important are, is his behavior. I mean, isn't it kind of important that Jesus didn't just speak from heaven into our lives, but like John said in the message version, he pitched his tent among us? That one of the things, one of the paradoxes of our faith that we believe is that Jesus, while 100% fully God, was also 100% fully us. Messy, human, dirty, B.O., stinky, hungry, and everything else that goes along with our humanity. Do you allow Jesus to be fully human? Because part of the thing that you rob from our faith is you, if you don't allow Jesus to be fully human, is you allow him to stay off at a distance where Jesus doesn't want to be. Because he'll come to your home for dinner. And he did. He practiced hospitality well. Do you know hospitality is listed as a gift in the New Testament? Do you know its root word is used for the word hospital? 
So one way we can look at this is to say that Jesus used the dining room table as a place of healing and grace. I like that. I like that. And he didn't really care who he was with either, did he? I mean, read it. He didn't really care who he was with. He accepted invitations to dinner from just about anyone. He accepted an invitation from a tax collector where the home quickly filled up with who the church folk called sinners. You know, the Pharisees stood outside the door and said, you see who he's eating? You see them? You see who he's with? He took an invitation from a Pharisee as well. The guy pointing the finger. He took an invitation from him in whose home he was chastised for the inappropriate behavior of the uninvited woman washing his feet. Remember that? It was at a meal where he fed 5,000 men and their families in one sitting. And another meal he told the story about what his kingdom was like. Remember? While the disciples were jockeying for position around the table because they wanted the most important thing. So Jesus is telling them what the kingdom is like, right? You're going to die. You need to serve while the disciples are jockeying for seats because they want to sit closest to him because they want the seat of honor. He, he received a, an invitation from Zacchaeus. He went to his home where we can assume they ate. Peter's mom, when healed, cooked a meal for him. Martha was preparing a meal when she lost it with Mary. Remember, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet while Martha was working in the kitchen and she thought Mary should be in there with her, but they were eating a meal. Robert Karras, who wrote the book that I just mentioned, says that in Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Now, listen, that should be good news for us. At least the church I grew up in, the thing we live for is potlucks, right? You know what I mean? We eat breakfast together, then we come to church, right? So that should be good news for us. Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. I mean, the Nazarene church that I grew up in should go, hey, I can, I can live that, you know? And I don't know, that may be a little bit of a stretch, right? But what he's saying is that Jesus is like us. He likes to eat, and he likes to eat with people. All kinds of people. And meals Jesus ate were never about the food, but about the company. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, where's he going? Well, I think, you, you know, or, or why this? And, and I, I've thought about that too. I actually thought about that before before talking about this with you this morning, but I think it's almost like, why do we feel like we need to give each other permission? Why does the church feel like, I feel like I need to give us permission to befriend them. I'm, I'm tired of bunkering down in the church. I'm tired of everything being fear-based. Jesus empowers us to live life out there. With them all day. And I, th I think it's fair for us to, when, if Jesus did this, it's fair for us to, to say that Jesus never acted irresponsibly or without thought or care, did he? That's why I said the way he acts speaks as loudly as, he were, as his words. He always had a reason for what he was doing. So if that's the case, when Jesus accepts invitations in the way he did to somebody's home, he's saying something about his kingdom and his people. He's trying to say something to us about the way we live. 
Jonathan Stormont is a pastor. I read a blog. Um, uh, Scott McKnight, I don't know if you're into blogs, but Scott McKnight has a blog, and I read his blog because he has a lot of cool stuff on it. And he started posting stuff from this young pastor named Jonathan Stormont. Jonathan Stormont this past year said that when, he, when Martin Luther King Day be, begins to approach, he, he, goes, he goes back and he reads uh, King's letters from a Birmingham jail, these letters that he wrote while he was in prison. And he says he's always challenged by the way King lived his life, in the way of Jesus. And, and he said this year he found himself asking these questions as he reflected on Dr. King's writings. He said that he asked these questions. Am I spending time with people who are only like me? Does the church I serve look just like me? Am I living the dream or just loving it? I, I, I have been challenged by those questions. Um, and I think they're appropriate questions for all of us to chew on, to wrestle with. So the dinner table serves as a symbol for us, a reminder that we are always to keep our table manners in check, that the way we eat with one another symbolically matters. Our etiquette is important. Now listen, our ethic, what we believe, is really, really important. But our etiquette is just as important. What we believe because, we, because our lives are laced with grace doesn't mean we believe any less the things that we hold as valuable and core. But we need to recapture, the church needs to recapture our etiquette because it's important. The dinner table serves as direction reminding us that our dinners can, our dinners can be served in the Jesus way. And what helps set the definition for us then, I think are a couple of verses. Jesus taught about this. He talked about it. And so did Paul. When I was preparing this and thinking about this, I'd never linked two passages together. But in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about first things first. And he says, if you seek first my Father's kingdom and his righteousness... Everything will be added. Everything you need for this life will be given to you. I, I like the way N.T. Wright says this in explaining the paragraph. You know, because right before that, what's Jesus saying? Don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. But seek first his kingdom and all this will be given to you. Here's what N.T. Wright says. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, if, if you seek the world first, you'll find that it gets moth-eaten right in your hands. But when we put God first, you get the world thrown in. Isn't that good? When you put God first, you get the world thrown in. The danger in all this for us is that in living so close to the world, will we lose our distinction? <laughs> you know, will the world, so to speak, affect our table manners? Well, maybe it already has. Honestly. Can I be honest with you? Maybe it already has. The values and ways the world says we're supposed to live are too often, the, the, the values and ways that the world says we're supposed to live are too often found shaping, I think, people of the kingdom who are supposed to be shaped by another way, by the way of Jesus, by his life, 
by the way he lived, by the people he welcomed. This verse is connected with another, and I'd never seen the connection before. But you know, Paul says in Romans that we aren't to conform our behavior then to the ways the world does things. But renew our minds so that what we do is shaped by the way Jesus would do them, not the way the world would do them. It's amazing to me how the words of Jesus and the world, words of Paul dovetail into each other. And I want to read it for you and listen to this because you won't even know where one ends and the other begins. So don't worry away with your what do we eat or what do we drink or what do we wear. Those are all the kinds of things that Gentiles fuss about. And your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But instead, make your top priority God's kingdom and his way of life and all these things will be given to you as well. What's more? Don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can work out what God's will is, what is good, acceptable, and complete. Don't be shaped by the worry and concerns of the world, but be shaped by another way so you can discern what God's will is, acceptable, complete, so you can live as people of the kingdom. I want to do that. I want to be a person. I, I told students in my, I said, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be cool if people, because, you know, I'm tired of the church getting kicked in the shins. Can I just be honest with you? It's not all fair and it's not all true. But some of it is. We have to own some of the criticism that's thrown our way. But wouldn't this be a cool thing for people to start saying about the church? You know, I don't agree with those people. But man, they're nice. That would be terrible. I don't agree with them. Jimmy, guy at work, you know what? I don't agree with that Jimmy. But man, he's a nice guy. You just can't argue with his character. I don't agree with what he believes, but man, he's just a nice guy. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be great if that's the way the world began to describe the church? Where our etiquette began to matter. A people who call themselves holy turned outward, (laughs) not just all about us, but this life that we live is an expression of the one in who we follow, and it spills out, and they don't agree with what we believe, but man, they sure are nice. That's, that's, That's a problem for me, because how do you not like nice people? And, you know, I know some people say, well, you got issues because you just like to be liked. Well, how did Jesus befriend people? How did he speak into their lives? What was the method that Jesus used to enter into the lives of the people that he loved? Well, a lot of times he ate with them. He just ate with them. He accepted invitations. He went to their homes. He broke bread with them. Who did he eat with? Who did he eat with? That's a good question, isn't it? He ate with them. Stinking Samaritans. Tax collectors. Sinners. Prostitutes. Now I sound like, we just did the play The Music Man. (laughs) You ever seen The Music Man? You know, the guy, pool, they got a pool, they got got a pool table in this, that's what I feel like I'm saying now, you know? But that's who he ate with. He ate with them. He eats with sinners. He ate with, Do you know he ate with his enemies? Even allowing the one who would betray him to share in the last 
earthly meal he would have with his disciples before he died. He eats with his critics, those whose very actions would be the ones responsible for his arrest, his, arrest, his trial, and his murder. He eats with friends. He eats with strangers. He eats with women. He eats with children, which, by the way, you didn't do in that culture. Many of the ones he ate with were considered unclean, which means he had to go through this whole ceremonial cleaning before he would be allowed back in the temple. You know that Jesus guy. You think he went through ritual cleansing before he came into the temple, or did he just show up? He ate with the rich and the poor, the powerful and the oppressed, the deceived and the enemy, the friend and the sinner. Jesus didn't care who you were. Man, I'm glad he didn't care who I was. Do you know how much of a sinner I am left to myself? As holiness people, don't forget that. We are lost without our Savior. I am a sinner, hopelessly lost without Him. Many of the ones He ate with were considered unclean. He was criticized. He ate with I've already said this, but when I cry, I lose my place. He ate with the rich and the poor, the powerful, the oppressed, the deceived, and the enemy, the friend and the sinner. Jesus didn't care who you were or what you believed because he was painting a picture of his kingdom. He ate with them. And you know who they are? It's me. I'm a them. I'm a them. He ate with me. I think in some ways, if I can be confessional with you this morning, that we've allowed this way of living, this kingdom living, to be hijacked. I don't know what we're afraid of. I'm tired of being afraid. I, I'll be misunderstood, but I'm not going to be afraid anymore. I'm not. I'll be friends with people maybe you think I shouldn't be friends with, but I don't care. Because I think Jesus would. I don't want the life that we're called to live but to be hijacked even by those in the church sometimes that are too critical. Come on. Life is short. Our time is limited. I don't want to do that. I can say this and get away with it, Aaron, right? Because I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm not sure when or where it happened, but I think we need to recover or maybe rediscover the gift. This, this practice of hospitality. We need to relearn that as people of the kingdom, like Paul says, we don't have spirits of fear and timidity, but we are to live up to what we've already attained. This life that we claim to have, let's live it out there. And I'm guilty as charged. I am not pointing fingers at anyone this morning. I'm challenged by this as well. What happens too often, though, is when we read these two verses Matthew and, from Matthew and Romans, our tendency is, because we, we're really good at this, we make them moralistic. You know, well, just tell me what I need to do and what I don't need to do. Well, that's not that easy. I'm sorry. We all know and we talk often in the church that holiness demands proper behavior, but it also demands right living. And it also demands a right spirit. And as kingdom people, our ethic is vitally important. But so is our etiquette, our table manners, so to speak, as we relate to our world. We need to be asking ourselves, how was I heard? 
how is this being translated? I found myself wondering at times if the trap of conforming has entered the lives of kingdom people in very subtle ways. Good people. Well-meaning people. Me. (laughs) Thinking I was doing the right things, but at times needing to seek forgiveness because I've hurt someone, I've offended someone, and I need to do it. I'm not Jesus. I want to be more like him today than I was yesterday. But I'm not him. And sometimes I need to seek your forgiveness for the way that I've said things and the things that I've done. In Luke, there are a series, you can read them, there are a series of passages that tell us about Jesus eating meals with people. And as I was reading these six meal passages, it was brought to my attention that there are two stories that precede the very first one. Before Jesus goes to a tax collector's home, there's two stories. The healing of, of, uh, the, healing of the paralytic and the healing of a leper. And then Jesus goes and eats a meal with a tax collector. Two people, a, a leper and a paralytic, two people considered unclean in Jesus' day. The Levitical law and its system would not allow you to be near them and let alone eat dinner with them because what they had was contagious. What they had would rub off on you. They were unclean. And if you touched anything unclean, you became unclean. So what is Luke saying? A leper, a paralytic, and eating with a tax collector. What if what he's trying to say to us is that uncleanness doesn't enter us by touching them? What if by Jesus reaching out, touching any and everyone, he's saying that my holiness through you is what's contagious? You don't have to worry about them rubbing off on you. How about you allowing me through you to rub off on them? Walter Wink says it this way, the contagion of holiness overcomes the contagion of uncleanness. I like that. Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors, takes it one step farther, and he says, in short, Jesus moved the emphasis from God's holiness being exclusive, which is how they would have defined it in their day, to God's mercy, which is like this. Instead of the message, no undesirables allowed, he proclaimed to God's, in God's kingdom, there are no undesirables. So if this is all true, I wonder if because of the culture that we're currently living in, and I can only again speak for myself, that if I have become more influenced by the voices from outside the kingdom telling me how to behave than the ones inside. Who or what is defining my kingdom living? How are my words and actions, the the things I do, influencing others? Or am I more afraid of them influencing me? And you need to hear this. If we're more afraid of them influencing us, that says way more about us than it does them. True? If we're more afraid of them influencing me, it says way more about me than it does them. Am I choosing to live by an old, dead form of the Levitical law? Do I fall into the trap? of managing my life as the world says or in the way of Jesus. So in a social climate being ripped apart by debates over things like healthcare reform, definitions of what marriage is, who has the right to get what. And I'm not saying, again, our ethic doesn't speak into those. But it seems to me that kingdom living needs to be recovered by people claiming to live in the way of Jesus. So I'm talking to 
the cream because you're here on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. And I don't want you to hear me asking you to do anything different than you already, already do. But I want you to listen to the voice that speaks to your heart. That your spiritual ears can tune into. To see what he might be saying to you this morning. What could happen if kingdom living was defined by the practice of hospitality where our dining room tables became again places of healing and grace? Now listen, every conversation Jesus had wasn't easy. He didn't agree with everyone he ate with. He told them to go and sin no more. <laughs> right? But it was embedded in relationship and it was laced with grace and mercy. That is our story. That is who we can be as well. My prayer for us as the church, as kingdom folk, is that we lay some things down and pick some other things up for the sake of his kingdom, not ours. Father God, would you help us this morning? Would you help these good, good people to move to a place that you're calling them to move to? I don't want to settle. I don't have near as many years left, left as I've already spent. And I don't want to settle. Don't let me. Help your church be your church again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think tonight Aaron said I'm, I'm the one who gets to invite you 5 o'clock.